The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone. So now we come to the grand finale, the very end of the Buddhist path. We're going to have a look at the insights that come from this process we have been looking at. And uh, so we've just been looking at the first 12 of the uh, 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing. We're going to come to the last four steps, the last of these four tetrads. Uh, and this last one is really equivalent to uh, what is called Dhamma Nupassana, uh, the contemplation of Dhammas or qualities or principles. Uh, some people call it principles uh, because it has to do with the principles of causality or conditionality. Uh, uh, and that's why they're often uh, said to be be called by that name. Dhamma is the Pali word, and Dhamma is a very kind of amorphous term. It can mean many things, uh, but here it means something like principles or qualities, depending on how you look at it. Uh, so the last four steps. Yeah, this is uh, so we have now practiced all the way to jhana and samadhi, and then what happens next? Uh, uh, they practice breathing in, observing impermanence. Anicca. They practice breathing out, observing impermanence. They practice breathing in, observing fading away. This is viraga in Pali. They practice breathing out, observing fading away. They practice breathing in, observing cessation. This is niroda. They practice breathing out, observing cessation. They practice breathing in, observing letting go, patinisagga. They practice out, observing, letting go. Observing here is uh, anupassi, anich anupassi, and it means like to see along with. So observing, in other words, you are aware of what is happening, watching, observing, contemplating. Uh, uh, probably observing is better than contemplating, because contemplating kind of means thinking about, but this is not thinking about, this is just literally being aware of what's happening here. So this is... a. Uh, what we are doing. And what we are seeing here, you're seeing four different stages of impermanence. Yeah, Four different stages of things changing yeah? and uh, whatever. It starts off with impermanence. And the first one, impermanence here, anicca, just really means any kind of impermanence, any kind of instability, things changing from one, uh, you know, its qualities changing on the way from one thing to another, uh, gradually changing from this to that. Uh, so it's more like just a general change in things, not a kind of a very fundamental change. Uh, a bit like the maybe the waves on the ocean always going up and down, rise and fall, moving here and there, instability uh, in general. Uh. So this is the first aspect of this impermanence, but it becomes, as you go through this, it becomes more and more profound. And the next one is the fading away aspect. And this means that impermanence, not only does it always change, but if you observe things in your meditation, they have a particular direction of change, a change in a certain way, the change towards cessation. That's why it's called fading away, yeah? gradually moving towards ending. Yeah? And this is what you see in your meditation practice, this movement in a certain direction. Yeah? And as that fading away continues, it ends up with cessation, the third of these four things. 
Yeah, so first you see instability, then you see gradual disappearance, which is fading away, and then see you, then you see the full disappearance, uh, which is the cessation, the ending of things. And then when you see the ending of things, uh, uh, that is when you often have the deepest insights. And this is what letting go is all about. Uh, letting go really means the ending of craving itself. Because you realize you cannot crave for something that is out of control, that is, uh, you know, that is not yours, that is dukkha and all of this. We'll see how it actually relates to all of these things in a second. Uh, and then, of course, that be then it becomes really impermanent. You let it go completely, it's gone. You've got nothing more to do with it. And that's really the end of the story as far as insight is concerned. <laughs> so four stages of impermanence, yeah, building on each other. Uh, and when you observe impermanence, not only do you see impermanence, but as we saw early on in the retreat, that in the impermanent you see dukkha, yeah? uh, anicce dukkha nupassi, anicce in the impermanent, dukkha nupassi, seeing or contemplating suffering, yeah? contemplating suffering in what is impermanent. So if, because it is impermanent, also the idea of dukkha, of suffering or unsatisfactoriness is also implied in that. Yeah? And then you have dukkha anatta nupassi, seeing non-self in what is suffering here. Yeah? Yeah, so all three characteristics are really included in this. You see anicca, dukkha and anatta, non-self suffering and impermanence. But impermanence is like almost like the basic insight. It's more fundamental than the others usually. The other ones uh, emerge from that one here. So this is interesting, right? This is the real, the real insights on the Buddhist path. This is what we're all heading towards. So what exactly is it that we see in this way? What are the things? Okay, you contemplate anicca. You know how how you how exactly do you do this? It's not very obvious. Yeah, you contemplate. Okay, boy, what you know? And and it, it you need a bit more instruction than that because otherwise it's very intangible, very hard to follow a kind of instruction that sort of instruction. So what you see as impermanent in this way. Yeah, obviously, we've just been through a process of meditation. It, re it reflects back on that process. So you're contemplating the process that you have been through. You've been calming down, you have been doing all of these things. Now you look back on that process and you see these things in that process that you have been through. Yeah, and sometimes you may not go through the whole process. You maybe only go part of the way, first five factors or seven factors or nine or whatever. But then you use whatever, however far you have gone, you use that and contemplate back on that process. Sometimes if you go all the way through the process, all the 12 factors, then that contemplation is going to be extremely profound and powerful. And I will explain to you exactly why in a minute. So what is that process that we have been looking at? Yeah, what is it that we are contemplating when we contemplate that process? And what it is, is the five khandhas. Yeah, panch, panchupadana kanda dukkha, pancha kanda. This is what it is. Because any this is all about experiencing things. And what we are experiencing is thing, things going in a certain direction. But all of that is just the five kandas. Yeah? People often ask, and I think rightly so, what are the five kandas? How do you contemplate them as impermanent, etc.? This is how you do it. This is, this, these are the five kandas right there. When you sit down to do your meditation, the breath is there. 
the breath is like rupa kanda yeah it's the the contact of the breath that contact is a sense of rupa that has a feeling that goes with it maybe it's pleasant feeling here yeah? there's a perception there perception is like yeah, maybe the perception of breath yeah you have a feeling what breath means and that's kind of the perception you give it a name almost that's what perception is uh, there is a will the will is to direct the mind towards the breath uh, yeah this is sankara kanda rupa vedana sanya sankara and then there is the awareness itself the ability to know what is going on uh, that is the vinyana kanda so what you are contemplating is the five kandas uh, when you do this uh, yeah it's a, and this is so, so, you can see how simple it is to contemplate the five khandas. All you do is you watch what is going on. This is your experience, a very simple experience. You carry on with the breath and then the khandas evolve in a certain way. The khandas moving in a certain direction. And then you contemplate that movement, that change in the khandas to understand what they really are. So let me give you some examples. So you are watching this process uh, and as you are doing that the body is gradually fading away the breath is getting first of all you start out you can't really feel much of your body maybe a few aches and pains occasionally but the breath is the most prominent aspect of your experience uh, and then that starts to fade away the breath becomes more and more subtle uh, the body disappears more and more in the background eventually it's almost as if the whole body is just gone and all that is left is a very refined experience of the breath yeah that's the body first of all being impermanent breath going in breath going out that's like impermanence in a basic way then the body is fading away becoming more and more in the background that's the viraga and eventually when you go deep enough the body is completely gone that's niroda especially when you enter a jhana state so you see this whole process you can't miss it yeah it's just happening in front of you this is your experience direct immediate experience and some of you will have had some of those experiences already yeah at least to some extent you'll have some idea what is going on so it's very direct and immediate and often we complicate the dhamma too much we think it's some kind of profound intellectual exercise of course it isn't you can be a very simple person, uneducated, and have full insight into these teachings. Uh, if you had to be very intelligent, then uh, it would be strange. Uh, so it's very very straightforward. And then when you contemplate the body back like that, and uh, when we talk about the body, we also mean the five senses to a large extent. Yeah, The five senses are turning up. But let's stick with the body for now. Then the body, you go into jhana, you come out, the body has completely gone. Yeah, you don't have access to the body anymore because it's a very deep state. Then you think back and you see impermanence. Not just impermanence, absolute impermanence to the point that uh, you cannot access it anymore. Uh, impermanence becomes very, very clear what it means. Uh, dukkha, because when the body is gone, wow, you feel so good. Body gone, yay, happy. <laughs> yeah, the, the happiness that comes with that. Uh, and non-self, because... Uh, Precisely because you can't access it, that means it is non-self. Anything you cannot access, by definition, is non-self. This is one of, one of the, again, the basic ideas of the Anattalakana Sutta. Yeah? You, if you cannot say, I want my body to be like this, I cannot move it, uh, then it is non-self because it's not part of your experience anymore. You can't even go there if you want to. Not that you want to, of course, but uh, you, you know, it's gone. Yeah, three characteristics. Maybe this sounds... It, Maybe it doesn't sound obvious, but uh, of course when you do it, then it will be obvious what's going on. You don't really have to 
don't have any, won't have any doubt about this anymore. Yeah. Same thing with the five senses. Yeah, five senses as you go through this process. Uh, of course, you close your eyes. Uh, um, just because you close your eyes doesn't mean the uh, sense of sight has turned off, but as you go deeper in your meditation, it actually turns off uh, and is gone completely. Uh, uh, tasting and smelling, of course, uh, bodily sensation. This is basically the body, and then the hearing is the last one to turn off. Uh, yeah, You can see the gradual movement away. You can start to see the impermanence of the senses. Uh, you start to understand why they are dukkha, because experience is so much more beautiful without these five senses. Uh, and eventually they cease completely, uh, and then you understand that they are non-self. You can't even see if you want to. You don't want to, but you can't, because it's outside of your reach. So absolutely impermanent. Completely gone. Huh? Yeah, then you have the uh, other aspects. You have the feelings, the Vedana, same kind of thing. Yeah, as you go through the, this process, certain feelings disappear. No more dukkha at a certain point. All you feel is happiness. Uh, there may be a little bit of dukkha in the background, uh, yeah, coming, kind of coming through your screen of perception occasionally, but basically it's gone. No dukkha. So dukkha is not required. You can exist without dukkha. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and then yeah, the sukha feeling, the happy feelings get more and more refined. The core sukhas, they go, you get more refined happinesses as you go along. Uh, yeah? And so the feelings are disappearing uh, one by one, being, uh, coming back to a more refined thing. All the worldly feelings are gone, the feelings that have to do with the five senses. And they are taken over by spiritual feelings instead. Uh, and so you see certain feelings changing here. Uh, gradually fading away and then being gone uh, completely. So you start to get this same idea with feelings as you had with the body. Feelings, uh, not everything feelings yet, there will be some feelings left even when you go into jhana, but certainly many feelings have this impermanence, dukkha and non-self. Perception, yeah, perception is just what kind of is our inner picture of the world. That is obviously becoming very refined after a while. Uh, as you you know, as you come to the very happy stages of the breath, all that is left is just a bit of breath and happiness. And then comes maybe the nimitta arising, a bright light in the mind. That's all you have in the whole world. Everything else is let go of. Very simple perception. Bright light and happy feeling. That's all that's there. Very, very simple. That's your perception of everything. Everything else is gone. Then you go into a jhana state. Your perception changes again. And all that you have really is... Bliss, nothing else. Yeah, so again, you see perceptions changing. The five, talking about the five khandas, yeah? The will, same thing. Yeah? Your ability to do things uh, is just gradually, gradually becoming less. Your will, you, you don't even want to do anything yeah? because the mind becomes so peaceful and still. Yeah, when you are peaceful, you don't want to do things. You know what I mean? Because when you are peaceful, if you do things, uh, you stir it up. And you destroy the peaceful state. You don't actually want to will. You see the will as a problem. The will is dukkha. That's what you start to understand. The less will you have, the better you feel. It's kind of weird, isn't it? We identify with the will as if the will is something precious. Because I can do things. And all the things that you want to do are useless anyway. But you don't get that. Yeah? <laughs> no, I should... I, not coming here, of course. That's useful. But, uh, you know... <laughs> I apologize for being naughty, but uh, this is, uh, I just learned from Ajahn Brahm. I'm conditioned that way. I, I apologize. <laughs> no choice in the matter. Non self, right? Uh, it's a nice excuse anyway. <laughs>
So this blooming will that we have there is just actually counterproductive. It doesn't produce any happiness and yet somehow we are attached to it even though it doesn't produce any happiness. Okay, after a while we get the idea, better let it go. There's no point in identifying with this will. Let it be. It, is, it doesn't produce anything. And then eventually go deep enough in meditation, the will is completely gone. Again, you understand the non-self nature of the will. You can't access it anymore. Yeah. And then the consciousness itself. Yeah, Consciousness, you see it and here I tend to follow the way Ram Brahm teaches the idea of consciousness uh, that uh, your different types of consciousnesses uh, of the five senses uh, when the five senses shut down the five external senses shut down those five consciousnesses are also gone you're only left with the mind consciousness and then as you go through the various jhanas the mind consciousness itself is kind of dwindles away gradually becomes more and more refined yeah as you go into these things uh. So this is how you contemplate the five khandhas uh, through direct experience. Uh, yeah, things changing, fading away, coming to an end, and eventually disappearing altogether. And then the penny drops. There's nothing here to hold on to. Uh, there's nothing here of interest. Uh, it is all just impermanent and problematic. Uh, why crave for these things? Uh, and then craving stops because of that. Patinisiga, you relinquish these things. You don't attach to them anymore. You have no craving for them. That is the last step on this, uh, this ladder of insight. So that is the um, process you go through. And again, you go through that insight partially, yeah, because you haven't gone through all the 12 steps before, or you, uh, the insight becomes more powerful the deeper you go. And if the first jhana is not enough, then you go into the second jhana, third jhana, and everything becomes more and more obvious as you do that. Uh, and uh, then these insights really fall into place as a consequence. Uh, and uh, there's nothing in the world uh, worth holding on to. Uh, uh, what is it? Sabbe, sabbe dhamma nalang abhinavesaya. Yeah, one of those famous statements in Buddhism, uh, you will see it around the Buddhist world. Sabbe Dhamma Nalang Abhinavesaya. Yeah, Sabbe Dhamma, all things. Uh, nalang, not worthy. Yeah, Al Alang means enough. Nalang, not enough. In other words, unworthy. And Abhinavesa is the grasping, holding on to things. Uh, nothing is worth holding on to. Uh, that is one of those nice summaries of the Dhamma. Maybe one of my fellow monks, he was once asked by his father, okay, tell me the Dhamma in brief. I don't want a long kind of disquisition on the Dhamma. Tell me exactly what it means in brief. And he said, Sabbe Dhamma Nalang Abhinavesaya. And his father said, okay. <laughs> then he told him what that means, right? But uh, very short. So um, anyway. Okay, so that is the um, insight part. And remember that insight and uh, calm, they always grow together. So throughout this process, you will gain little insights and little calms. You, be more, you have more clarity, you see clearly as you become calmer, as you become calmer, you see more clearly. It is all growing together. Why? Because the hindrances are, grow are disappearing gradually. And as the hindrances disappear, you become more calm and you see more clearly. That is the nature of a mind without hindrances. So, this is, so they, have, they always have to go together because their cause is the same. Okay, so... Uh, um,
So this will fin finish off the sutta. And uh, then uh, the Buddha says, mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated in this way, in this way, yeah, is very fruitful and beneficial. So this is how we do the cultivation of uh, mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, ideally, this is the process you want to go through. And um, then we have to decide the last paragraph on, on page 25. Uh, we have to uh, decide how this fulfills the, the four uh, the four what the four mindfulness meditations yeah or the four applications of mindfulness so, so this is the very last party and how is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it fulfills the four kinds of mindfulness meditation yeah? whenever a mendicant knows that they breathe heavily or lightly or experiencing the whole body or stilling the body's motion yeah so these are the four things we saw at the beginning at that time, they are meditating by observing an aspect of the body, yeah, an aspect of the body, a certain part of it, keen, aware, mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. For I say that the in-breaths and out-breaths are an aspect of the body. That's why at that time, a mendicant is meditating by observing an aspect of the body, keen, aware and mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. So uh, there you are. Yeah, the, uh, the breath is specifically said to be an aspect of the body. And that's how we can deduce that in this whole length, whenever it says kaya, it is dealing with uh, the breath rather than the ordinary body. Yeah. This is basically what it is saying here. Yeah. And this is how it fulfills uh, the satipatthana. Yeah? Yeah, you do that, and uh, the, the, the that little section there where it says that uh, you are uh, meditating, observing an aspect of the keen, aware, and mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. That is the standard way that Satipatthana practice is described in the suttas. Uh, yeah, you always find that everywhere when it's described. Uh, what does it mean? It means keen is atapi. Atapi is one of these. Uh, words that you find a lot in the suttas. Aware is sampajano, yeah, from sampajanya, which is a, a awareness or clear comprehension or whatever you want to call it. Satima, mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. Vinaya, loke, abhijja, doma, nasang. And these are the things that are always there when you, if you practice your uh, Satipatthana correctly. Yeah, this gives you an, a, a nice idea of what kind of qualities of mind are required for Satipatthana practice, which includes then the meditation on the breath. Keen, yeah, atapi. Um, keen, it's not, it's, uh, maybe not super precise. Keen, yeah, I'm really keen. I'm not sure if it's exactly that, but uh, it is keen in the sense of atapi. It's very closely related to the idea of making an effort or having energy, yeah? In the Pali Suttas, you have uh, Vayama and Padana, which are the effort that you make on the path. And when that effort becomes automatic and your mind is energized, then it's called Virya. And Atapi is somewhere in between. It's related to these terms, yeah? It's when your mental energy is growing and you are applying yourself to the Dhamma in a positive way. That's Atapi, yeah? yeah? So 
it's like a transforming of that effort you make into real energy of the mind. And then you are aware, and this here is having is really about uh, awareness in a higher sense. Sampajana or sampajanya is about this uh, clear idea of what you're doing, why you are doing things. Uh, yeah. So while you're meditating, you know whether your mind is heading in the right direction, uh, whether you're observing things in the right way. Uh, this is kind of the idea of sampajanya. Yeah, you know, are you fulfilling the purpose of the path? Uh, is what you're doing suitable for, f- for fulfilling that purpose? Those are the two main aspects of Sampajanya. Yeah, and you know. So you, you know, suddenly if you are thinking about all things, okay, you know, Sampajanya tells you I'm heading in the wrong direction. Uh, or you are feeling slothful, you, you know again that what's going on. Uh, or if you're feeling things are calming down, you know, yeah, this is heading in the right way. That's what Sampajanya tells you. It is there to guide you to head in the right direction. And Sampajanya is something that you take with you on the entire path because it uh, reminds you whether you're going in the right direction or not. Uh, and then Satima, mindful, yeah? You have to be mindful to do this practice. Uh, it again shows you that mindfulness is a prerequisite. Uh, it is not something that arises out of the practice itself. Although, of course, mindfulness is strengthened, it is here mentioned as a prerequisite for the practice. And then rid of desire and aversion for the world. Vinaya loke abhijja domanasa. And abhijja domanasa are basically, uh, uh, you know, the attraction to the world and the you are attracted to things in the world or you are the opposite, you have aversion to the things of the world. You like something or you dislike it, yeah? Like we always do. The mind is always going into these spheres in the world, liking, disliking. And we all mind is buffeted around and moved around and shoved here and there because of these likes and dislikes. And the world, well, the world here, here it is not really clearly defined, but here it is defined elsewhere. World can mean many things, but in this context, it must mean the world of the five senses. Yeah, the sensory world, uh, where we are, mind is forever moved here and there, and, and running around, and liking and disliking, aversion and uh, desire. So you have to get rid of that to a large extent, uh, because otherwise you're just going to be too restless, uh, too agitated, too much craving here uh, to really be able to uh, watch the breath. Uh, so a large part of that has to be let go of before you go. You can meditate. So that's just what that is saying. So this kind of adds up to some of the things I've been saying before about when meditation is possible. Yeah, and here it is kind of made very clear and very. Yeah, there's no doubt about what's going on anymore. Maybe here, yeah. well, there's always doubt, but less doubt. Yeah. So there you are. That is how this is done. This is how it fulfills the four. Mindfulness meditations, and then the four mindfulness meditations, if you practice them properly, they fulfill the seven factors of awakening. In fact, this is what we have almost seen through this process, because all of these factors we have been looking at just now, yeah, they are precisely the awakening factors. We've been seeing you how you experience pity. Yeah, pity is one of the awakening factors as you breathe. Tranquility is part of that, calming down all the time, and samadhi is part of that. So these are parallel courses, yeah, the mindfulness of breathing, the seven awakening factors, they go in parallel. They are two different vantage points on exactly the same process. Uh, yeah, so this is 
this is this consistency throughout the suttas all the time, looking at things in the same way. Uh, so that is, you can actually almost read the awakening factors into that text. Yeah, and you can kind of plot them as you go along. Dick, 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 bing, bingo. Going to come to the bottom here. Uh, this is why they call the awakening factors that lead you all the way here. <laughs> so now we're going to come to the last sutta of this retreat. Um, only of this retreat. It's only the last sutta when you become an arahant, but uh, temporarily the last sutta. <laughs> so, um, and uh, this is um, a sutta I also tend to read out on these retreats. And I will read it last because it kindly kind of summarize everything. Uh, and uh, it is here translated by uh, Ajahn Sujato as making a wish. The Pali word is chaitana. It means literally willing, you know, something like that. Uh, this is in the numerical discourses of the Buddha, Anguttara Nikaya, that chapter on the 10th, the 10th chapter in that book, the second sutta. Uh, that's what an ten dot two means. If you ever, I haven't really explained these numbers, but that's what they mean all the way throughout. Uh, and um, this shows exactly the same sequence again from a third point of view. I mentioned early on how this idea of how meditation is experienced, uh, how it is found in so many suttas, uh, yeah, with slightly different angles, slightly different perspectives. Uh, and this is one of those critical ways that it's found. Uh, this is no, sometimes known as dependent liberation. That's how I, well, actually, this was a title suggested by Ajahn Sujato a long time ago. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi called it transcendental dependent arising, uh, which was a bit of a mouthful. So dependent liberation is really nice and uh, concise. Uh, and that is basically the same process as the seven factors of awakening, the same process as uh, mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, all very important frameworks, all saying almost exactly the same thing yeah, about the process of meditation, uh, which is great. It shows that this is a core aspect of how the Buddha taught the Dhamma. You go to the suttas that have been translated into ancient Chinese, and again, this particular sequence is exactly the same there as well. Uh, so these are authentic Buddha Vajana going back in time to the time of the Buddha himself. So what? how does this work? And here we go. And you will recognize straight away so many of the factors here as we go through this. Mendicants, an ethical person who has fulfilled ethical conduct, need not make a wish. May I have no regrets. It is only natural that an ethical person has no regrets. When you have no regrets, you need not make a wish. May I feel joy. It is only natural that joy springs up when you have no regrets. When you feel joy, you need not make a wish. May I experience rapture. It is only natural that rapture arises when you're joyful. When your mind is full of rapture, you need not make a wish. May my body become tranquil. It is only natural that the body becomes tranquil when the mind is full of rapture. When your body is tranquil, you need not make a wish. May I feel bliss. It is only natural to feel bliss when the body is tranquil. When you feel bliss, you need not make a wish. May my mind be immersed in samadhi. May my mind be stilled. It is only natural for the mind to be stilled when you feel bliss. When your mind is still, stilled, you need not make a wish. May I truly know and see. 
It is only natural to truly know and see when your mind is stilled. When you truly know and see, you need not make a wish. May I become disillusioned or and dispassionate. It is only natural to become disillusioned and dispassionate when you tru- truly know and see. When you are disillusioned and dispassionate, you need not make a wish. May I realize the knowledge and vision of freedom. It is only natural to realize the knowledge and vision of freedom when you are disillusioned and dispassionate. So uh, this is the sequence of one thing leading to the next one, yeah. And uh, it may, and it's nice. It's very repetitive, and some people might sometimes think this is boring and they don't like to read the suttas. But uh, it really focuses you on the main element, yeah. Because everyone is uh, repeated in this way, it makes you see the main element in each one. You can see how wh- what it is that leads to the next one, uh, and it's repeated. It makes it into a contemplation almost if you think about this in the right way. Yeah? So um, it is. Um, so this again, and you can recognize so many of the factors there from before, yeah? The factors that exist in um, the seven factors of awakening, many of them are there. You have the joy, the piti, you have the tranquility, you have the samadhi, yeah? The, the main factor, and then it's filled in with a few more factors in between. But the main factors are there, very closely related. Some of the things here uh, maybe I should make a point I need to make a point about a kind of few general remarks about this uh, first of all Ajahn Sujato he has need not make a wish uh, but really I, so far the, the Pali is much stronger than that uh, the Pali is not Chaitanya Karaniya not to be done by wishing not to be done through willing that's literally what it means uh, yeah and why well because it's natural as it says afterwards uh, and if you try to force what is natural by willing, you're going to get in the way. It's obvious, right? If it is natural, you have to let it unfold. That's what natural means. And if you try to will the unfolding of nature, basically you're going to retard, stop it. You're going to hold it back instead of allowing it to happen. So the will is actually a problem. Yeah, It is not something that should uh, need not be used. It is much more... Se- uh, severe than that, uh, it cannot be used. And in fact, it gets in the way. Uh, and this is kind of an important point. So you have to stand back and allow it to happen, allow nature to take its course. Uh, that's really what it is saying here. Uh, that's a very important point with this. Uh, um, the other thing that is very important here is the idea that if every factor leads to the next one, uh, yeah, if every factor is in accordance with nature, it means that the first factor is very important. Yeah, Get the first factor right, not just right, but get it strong, get it built up, get it kind of heaped up as much as possible. That is when the other factors will arise. Yeah, the other factors come as a natural consequence. The first one is the most important one. Uh, Make that really, really strong, and then this sequence must happen. So if your meditation is not super-duper strong, if it's you're enjoying it, but maybe not the, the most powerful, yeah, some of you say, oh, yeah, I've been kind of you know, muddling around doing this for many years now, and, and you are enjoying it, but you haven't maybe gone quite as deep as you would like. Well, that is where the problem is. It is in the nature of sila. Yeah? And so then you need to ask yourself, why is my sila not good enough? What is it in there which is problematic? 
and you will if you look carefully you will find there's always more things you can do uh, sila means uh, just to remind you very quickly you know it already but uh, it means first of all not doing bad things by body and by speech in any realm of life really and it means doing the good things uh, yeah can you do more good things because doing good things uh, being generous being kind being caring saying nice things to people giving other people the gift of your kind speech uh, that feels good uh, you feel good about yourself and that of course that feeling good about yourself is really what this is about because the whole path is about experiencing happiness and joy so it's so important yeah and then you have to go into the mental realm as well and this is one of the reasons why i talked before about you know i gave all the similes of the danger of the sensory world because that detachment from the sensory world at least to some extent uh, is also one of the factors that helps you to go deeper in meditation that is also part of sila so sila is very very broad uh, especially of course overcoming ill will and these things and developing the opposite uh, developing compassion kindness and care for the world uh, yeah this is really this is where the this is the, the nitty gritty of meditation get that into place uh, yeah strengthen those factors and then the meditation will happen according to nature as it says here so this is so important getting the foundations and this is of course the things that you know you we've been talking about all along but here it becomes like summarized uh, into this uh, teaching here so uh and uh, so, so, yeah so it is it, it is natural huh? So um, let's just uh, have a look at all the factors here, yeah, and uh, see how they actually work. So once your ethical conduct, your sila is kind of pure, purified, yeah, then you have no regrets. And having no regrets, it doesn't sound all that profound, but uh, there are many degrees of not having regrets, yeah. One is when you kind of upbraid and you're upset with yourself for having done something silly in the past, but uh, Having regrets here also means that basically the purity of the mind. The mind becomes very pure and very bright if you live really, really well. And that is part of this as well. Huh? Yeah, you, There's no kind of grayness or darkness in the mind. It's that it's brilliant because you're living really well. That is kind of the deeper idea here of non-regret. Huh? Yeah, And of course, once you have non-regret to that extent, huh, then, of course, the joy comes about because of that uh, which then is the next factor here the pamuja pamuja arises because you feel glad naturally glad nothing to regret in the whole world in fact quite the opposite uh, many things to be happy about uh, in this world uh, you're living well doing the right thing uh, and you experience joy pamuja yay pamuja and the at this point yeah this is where the meditation starts again the mindfulness of breathing uh, and then you deepen that process yeah and this is the whole process that comes out of this uh, and here it is so obvious that what a marvelous process this is again joy rapture tranquility bliss sa samadhi yeah one thing after the other just one happiness upon one happiness building up until it becomes the ultimate happiness at the very bottom it's like this remarkable process again so you feel that joy and as you meditate, you deepen the joy. 
and then you feel the deepening of the joy it becomes very powerful and it can coursing through the body and this kind of thing that's the rapture coming about uh, and then as you keep on going that rapture that physical sensation that may be there it tranquilizes it becomes more peaceful uh, yeah and sometimes you feel like this uh, rock in your meditation because you're so content to be here you don't want to do anything else in the whole universe as i mentioned before uh, and uh, this can be very literal almost that you become like a rock and you can look dead to other people uh, yeah they think you're dead if they think you're dead then that's a sign of you got doing really really well uh, yeah <laughs> I, I i love that one of my favorite stories is the story of uh, ajahn brahm in uh, when he was in thailand and uh, this was when he was still kind of a young monk and uh, they always practiced in public in those days because uh, that's the way it was done so the lay people would come in and it was often on the uposata days yeah the uh, uh, the um, uh, the full moon days and the new moon days and they would sit all night very often all the lay people would come and these were really tough lay people yeah especially the women apparently were super duper tough and they would come to the monastery and these were rice farmers used to really heavy work always sitting on the floor and they so they had a kind of natural ability to sit on the floor forever <laughs> So um, <laughs> they would come to the monastery and the monks would be there and the monks would sit on the asana, a bit like this asana, like a seat which is higher up and then the people, the lay people would sit a little bit lower. They would do the chanting and they would meditate all night. And very often because they were meditating all night, people would sometimes get really tired. Yeah, And the monks and the lay people, they would kind of gradually disappear as the night uh, went on. And uh, on this one night, uh, eventually there's only two people left in the hall. There was uh, Ajahn Brahm, yeah, Venerable Brahm, I think he was called then. He was sitting on the asana. And then there was this ancient Thai lady, uh, super duper ancient, uh, who had kind of been there forever. And she was one of these ladies that could sit on the floor forever because she was kind of grown up like that. Uh. So she was watching Ajahn Brahm uh, and she was watching him uh, and there was nothing moving here. Uh, yeah, absolutely still. And she couldn't believe it. The, the, everything was completely still. And then. Uh, as she watched him, eventually after watching him like this for an hour or two, yeah, she got up from her seat uh, and she went outside uh, and she found another monk and she said to this monk, uh, there's a dead monk in the hall. Uh. <laughs> yeah, because that's what it looks like. Yeah, it looks like you're dead because you are so still. Uh. And that is kind of the highest kind of praise you can get, yeah, because you are you, you, you kind of finished. Uh. And uh, so this is what happens, uh, yeah. And of course, he wasn't dead. And later on, he kind of got up, got out of his meditation, and he went back to his room. Uh. And uh, so this is uh, kind of what happens when the tranquility becomes so profound. Uh, and they say that if your meditation is deep enough, uh, you stop breathing. Uh. Yeah, you don't breathe anymore. And that's pretty still, right? If you don't breathe, uh, even if you breathe very slowly, you can probably barely notice it. But if you really still. The breath is completely gone. How is that possible, you might ask? For those of you who are a little bit new to Buddhism, you th may think I'm talking nonsense and I I'm going to get out of here after this because this is, this is like a cult or something. Yeah. But no, it is possible. And the reason why it is possible, remember what we're doing here, is that we're calming down everything in the physical realm. Yeah? Your body is calmed down so much that the entire metabolism comes to a stop. The body doesn't metabolize anymore. That's what we mean literally. I mean, this is not just calming down mentally, but the whole body is completely affected by it. So the metabolism stops 
for a certain time. If your metabolism stops, you don't need oxygen anymore because you're not burning anything. Yeah, The cells just go into this limbo, freeze, nothing is happening. Yeah? You don't need any sustenance because the body is not doing anything at all. And because of that, you can stop breathing. Yeah? Yeah? When oxygen isn't required, no need to breathe. So you stop and everything stops and it stays like that for few hours, yeah, maybe more even if it, the meditation is really profound. And that is when you start to get this idea that uh, the spiritual path is a little bit otherworldly, yeah. If you don't have to breathe, then it's kind of pretty, pretty amazing, yeah. Ajahn Brahm tells this story, I, I, you know, this is one of Ajahn Brahm's stories. I, I, I'm never entirely sure how much is... Uh, is uh, you know the the truth getting in a way of a good story? I'm not entirely sure how much of that there is, but uh, this was a monk in, the, in Indonesia, a monk that Ajahn Ram knew very well. And uh, according to this story, this monk was sitting meditation in somewhere, uh, in a kind of low a low place, yeah. And then this massive rain pour came, and as this monk was sitting in meditation, the water started to rise. He was sitting in a low spot, so the water would rise and rise and rise above him and it would stay above him for a few days and then the water would come down again and he was still sitting there and then he opens his eyes and gets up and walks away <laughs> yeah and this again it seems to be one of those things that you know your meditation is so deep you don't even know what happened oh yeah my, my robes feel a bit humid i wonder what happened how come they're so humid i i was you know it's not maybe because of perspiration or something i, I don't know <laughs> i don't know what he thought but this is then what might happen, yeah? Uh, there are more stories like that in the, some from the suttas as well, uh, which are uh, kind of uh, hard to believe. One of the stories in the suttas is about the monk who went into Sanyavadaita Niroda, the final cessation of everything here. Yeah? And he's sitting in the forest and he is completely seized. There's no movement, there's no breath going in and out, there's nothing at all happening here. Yeah? And there's two. Uh, farmers or cowherds or whatever they are, they're collecting wood because they're going to, you know, collecting wood to make a fire back home or something. Yeah. And as they're collecting wood, they see this monk. Yeah. And one says to the other one, Oh, this monk over there, he's dead. Yeah, look at him, he's not moving at all, he must be dead. Okay, we better cremate him. Yeah, so they have all this wood because they're collecting wood. Okay, we better cremate this poor fellow because uh, he's otherwise he will rot. It's not very nice for a monk to rot, so we should cremate this monk. So they put up a nice stack of wood and they put the monk on top, yeah, because he's kind of sitting nicely cross-legged, put on top, and then they <laughs> light the fire, yeah, and then they go off, and then the next day in the village, yeah, they kind of give alms to the monks, because that's what people do in ancient India, they still do that in the present day, one of the marvelous things about India, if you come as a monk over there, they give you food, yeah, go to a poor village or whatever, or anywhere, it's just astonishing, they recognize what you know, they perceive you as a spiritual person. And so the next day, they are there in the village putting food in the monk's bowls until suddenly, wow, there is that monk who we cremated yesterday. <laughs> he just come into the village. yeah. And uh, the idea is that when you meditation is so profound, then you cannot be touched by fire. It's as, as if the body somehow is protected by the mind. Because the mind is the so profound at that stage uh, that uh, the, the body is somehow kind of uh, the mind kind of looks after everything here. 
Is it true? I don't know, but it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it shows the world. There's much more going on in the world that sometimes meets the eye, yeah? and especially if you get into uh, using the mind in these special ways. Yeah? So uh, anyway, yeah. So the tranquility becomes very profound at this stage in a med- your meditation. Really, really deep. You're really and en- really enjoying yourself. You don't want to do anything else in the whole world. You just want to sit here forever and ever. Of course, you can't do that because eventually things kind of start to move again in your body and your mind. But in the meantime, if you go even deeper, then you start to feel the bliss coming from that tranquility, deep tranquility, profound bliss, the sukkha of deep meditation. And this is where you get drawn in to samadhi. You get drawn in because the happiness is so profound. You don't want to do anything else in the whole world. You become absolutely still. Yeah, There's nothing going on in you whatsoever. And so it draws the mind in. And you're just enjoying what you're doing 100%. Everything else becomes irrelevant. And that's why then the samadhi becomes so all-consuming. Samadhi meaning stillness, absolute stillness. Giving up the five senses. Yeah, samadhi happens. And then, when you've had a state of samadhi, you have an extraordinarily powerful mind. You have a mind where there are no distortions because all the defilements of desire and aversion have left be- been left behind. And because there are no distortions in the mind anymore, it means that you are ready to see reality. Yeah, there's nothing to kind of to um, make you to stop you from seeing what is there because the distortions are gone. You have the power of mind that is able to deal with something very profound. Usually, seeing non-self is very difficult, and it can be very fear-inducing. Yeah, that's what people say sometimes. They may have fear in the meditation. You need a very powerful mind to be able to deal with this. So you have the powerful mind. And you have the right view coming with the Buddha, the idea that the, you know now you need to investigate these things. So you look look at the five khandhas. In other words, you look at the process you have been through, yeah, the mental things, and you look specifically at that state of samadhi itself. And as you do that, you see the reality of that state. You see the reality of the five khandhas, and you're able to deal with it. And what is it that you see? Well, you see the dukkha of these things that it's suffering. That is not nice. Yeah, we just talked about before impermanence, dukkha, suffering, and non-self. That is what you see here. And because you see, and because here the uh, emphasis is on dukkha, you get what is called here. What does he call it? Disillusionment. Well, it's more like it's like aversion. Yeah, uh, a, a rejection of the five khandhas. You reject them because you know that this is there's nothing there to be had. You are averse to them. You reject them. You are repelled from them. And uh, uh, that is what is happening with the mind. So this is why here we have the idea that knowing and seeing things according to reality, you become dis- disillusioned and then dispassionate. Dispassionate is the opposite of craving. Yeah. So craving is disappearing here as you do this. First of all, you reject it. And if you keep on rejecting it enough, eventually your entire craving dries up and is thrown away here. And you have no passion, no desire, nothing of interest uh, in these things anymore. Yeah, yeah this is how it's kind of uh, hard to understand, maybe, but uh, not kind of utterly impossible to understand. Yeah, you can get some idea what is going on here. When you see dukkha, your mind turns away automatically. Yeah? 
No force is required. It just happens uh, because you know there's nothing there of interest anymore. Huh? And then if you keep on doing that long enough, uh, if you keep on doing that to all the aspects of experience, uh, everything, all the aspects of your existence, uh, then eventually you are liberated from all that all those things. You have no craving for them anymore. Uh, you have no attachment to any of these things. Because how can you crave for dukkha? No one craves for suffering, right? Uh, so you just let it all go, and then you are come to the end of the path. Uh, yeah, you realize you have the knowledge and vision of freedom. Uh, yay! I don't know if you think yay, but you know, you you just uh, you are <laughs> you probably feel something like that, but much more profound, obviously. Uh, and then you come to the very end. Uh, knowledge and vision of freedom. So that is the very end of the path. And the end of the path, it has two aspects really. It has the vidya, the knowledge on the one hand, you see here knowledge and vision, yeah, jnana dasana, and the other one is the freedom. And the knowledge is the understanding of everything being dukkha or suffering, everything, not, nothing being worthy of holding on to. It is the insight into non-self, because that is how you can see the dukkha. If you have a sense of self, there will always be a vested interest. Uh, give up the sense of self, then you can see the dukkha fully for the first time. Uh, that is the insight. Uh, and the liberation is the freedom from all that oppression. Uh, we haven't really understood how much oppression there is in this world until you kind of move out of it uh, and you see it all from above with a bird's eye view, with a sense of perspective. Uh, freedom from dukkha, freedom from the defilements of the mind, freedom from all of these crazy round of rebirth going on with no purpose and no aim. Uh, and now you have come to the goal of the path itself. So then um, the very last thing uh, the Buddha says here, uh, he says that, and so mendicants, uh, good qualities flow on and fill up from one to the other for going from the near shore to the far shore, going from being an ordinary per per person to becoming a super person. Uh, Uttari manusadama, superhuman qualities, qualities beyond the ordinary uh, that you gain. Yeah, the flow on and fill up, it's a beautiful idea, the flowing on, moving on by themselves, filling up one quality after the other. But you have to fill them up, right? That's why it takes time. So keep on at it, and they fill up gradually until eventually you get to the far shore. So, there you are. That is how it's done in theory. <laughs> so now we just have to do it. So, um, um, just to maybe summarize very briefly, uh, um, the uh, remember what are the kind of the main things to do? I, maybe you are completely baffled by Buddhism. Those of you who are new to this, I think Buddhism. Wow, that's really this is really far out. This is wild stuff, and not. And but um, and. It may seem, sometimes it seems impossible. Yeah, you read the Tipitaka and there's so many suttas there, there's so many different ways of doing things and looking at things. Uh, and you may think it's just beyond any human being to remember any of this stuff. How can I practice something so complicated? There's so many factors here. And uh, so it's very important in Buddhism to bring things back down to simplicity. Uh, very the simplest things possible to make it possible to practice this path. Uh, yeah. And what is that simplicity? Uh, you know what I 
I always like to teach, there's only one thing you need to know on the Buddhist path, uh, one thing you should remember, uh, and that is kindness. Uh, that's all you have to remember, and that's difficult enough. Uh, yeah, I always like to ask people that question, can you remember kindness? People say, yes, can. No, you can't. Yeah, even that is difficult enough. So we need to bring it down to very simple things. So, if it, But if you can remember kindness, and you remember the scope and the breadth of kindness, what it means to not do the bad things and to develop the good qualities all the way throughout your person, the way you think, the way you perceive, the way you act, the way you speak, everything about you should be imbued with this kindness, pervaded with kindness, uh, then you are on the right track. Yeah. So the idea is just to keep that at the back of your mind, uh, yeah, how to do this, uh, and then keep on doing this. Uh. And that is the hard part, having that right view at the back of your mind, which drives you towards that at all times. Uh. And to do that, you have to come back to the Dhamma. Yeah? Come back again and again. Uh. Read something. The most important thing is not to read for knowledge, uh, because all, all of you have probably plenty of knowledge already here. Uh. Maybe too much knowledge. Sometimes the knowledge gets in the way. Yeah, You sit there and become this pipe-smoking, intellectual Buddhist, uh, musing, musing. Mm, I wonder. Yeah, too, A little bit of musing is good, but not too much musing it, because it kind of gets in the way. Yeah. Instead, uh, you keep that right view with you, the right understanding for what really matters in the world. Uh, and that is what you need. So inspiration is often more important than knowledge. Uh, a bit of both is good, uh, but inspiration is certainly very, very valuable. So find that inspiration in your life uh, that always keeps you on the right track, that makes you a kind person, that view that sits at the back of your mind, yeah, always there uh, and always kind of guiding you in the right direction. That should be the goal. Uh, and to do that, uh, come back to simple suttas, uh, an inspiring verse, an inspiring Dhamma talk by Ajahn Brahm or whoever your favorite teacher might be, uh, that brings you back on the straight and narrow uh, and moving towards the, uh, this marvelous thing with all these beautiful qualities uh, that we have on this path. Uh, such an extraordinary path. Yeah, you read this and think, well, this is it's almost too much to believe. You can't barely believe that these things are possible. Uh, it's so profound and so powerful and so full of everything that we ever wanted in our life. We've always been looking in the wrong place. And now, finally, we're starting to look in the right place. And the more you get that, the more you get the urgency and power of these teachings, the easier it is to have that right view, always following you, always guiding you, leading you in the right way. Every time you open your mouth, you think, "What? how can I say this in the right way? How can I imbue this with extra kindness, compassion, uh, with all of these good qualities. Uh, yeah, And then you are kind of definitely on the right track. And then when you come back to meditate, uh, yeah, in a year's time, uh, in a few months' time, uh, whenever it is, uh, you find things have changed a little bit. Uh, you don't look for results in your meditation anymore. You forget about that. You just enjoy what you have. Uh, and that enjoyment is deeper than it was before. Uh, and then you, the whole thing is coming along, developing nicely. Uh, and then you get even more encouraged as a consequence. Uh. So, that is the end of this talk. <laughs> so, uh, I'll, uh, uh, according to the program, um, I, I'm not sure, Chinta, should we come back here at 4 o'clock? Is that the idea? Yeah? 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 Great, share the merits or whatever, do some, yeah.
at the end you mean yeah okay so we'll just follow the program then to the end so i'll come back here again at four and maybe we'll see yeah okay marvelous let's just pay respect to the buddha masanga